Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. As we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part, to save democracy, and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. You can decide how you want to help. You can decide where you want to help. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Fred Wellman and Cyrus Schick, co-founders of The Beer Hall Project, an organization inspired by the infamous Beer Hall Putsch of 1923 in Germany and its aftermath, whose singular focus is to fight on the front lines against the far right's campaign to erase and revise the events of January 6th. Fred is an old friend and family member of The Lincoln Project, senior advisor here and all-around major domo. Served in the U.S. Army for 22 years as an aviator and public affairs officer, including four combat tours over operations Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom. Fred's also a political consultant, veterans advocate, and now the co-founder and communications director of the aforementioned Beer Hall Project. Fred, welcome back. Great to be back, Reed. It's good to see you. Also joining us is Fred's partner, Cyrus Schick, who serves as both executive and research director of the project. Prior to Beer Hall, he's done extensive work in grassroots organizing and worked on numerous campaigns including Beto O'Rourke's presidential campaign in Iowa, as well as serving as campaign director for both Senator Claire McCaskill in 2018 and Senator John Hickenlooper in 2020. Cyrus, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So guys, today I want to hear more about how you came to found the Beer Hall Project and what it does and how you hope to see it operate over the next nine months before Election Day. But let's talk about 1923, 99 years ago. So Fred, Talk to us about how you came up with the Beer Hall Project, because a history nerd like me knows what the Beer Hall Putsch was. But take our listeners through a little bit of, you know, history almost 100 years on and how it plays out today. Of course, November 8th and 9th, 1923, Hitler had been charged the uh, National Socialist Party for just a couple of years at that point. Sort of a far right fringe group. But he was a huge fan of Benito Mussolini, who in a month before that had made his infamous march to Rome where he was appointed prime minister with his fascist and his black shirts. Hitler hoped to kind of duplicate that, right? So he thought, all right, we'll go to Bavaria, where there is a triumvirate managing the state of Bavaria, essentially a dictatorship of their own. He heard they were speaking at this beer hall, marched in, surrounded the building with his SA brown shirts, marched in, fired a shot into the ceiling, said, silence, stormed the podium and declared that they were going to take over the government and marched to Berlin and hustled the uh, leadership into the back room convincing them to join his uh, dictatorship. Of course, the thing is, they wanted their own dictatorship, didn't want him in charge of it. So after several hours of drama, while his essay were trying to take over barracks across Munich, Ludendorff showed up, famous World War I general. Of course, had been sort of the, the military dictator of Germany during World War I. Ludendorff was a supporter. Ludendorff took over the beer hall while Hitler left. Ludendorff let the Germans leave, the leadership. 
they alerted the police and the troops. And so overnight, things kind of went awry. So they decided to go ahead and march the city center on the 9th and see if they couldn't take over. Where shots rang out, 16 Nazis were killed, four police, and the beer hall push was ended. But the story doesn't end there. It was a failed coup. The real story that brought me and Cyrus together is what happened afterwards. What happened was that Hitler was wounded, actually hurt himself running away, of course, was tried. His trial was sort of a, it was a very weak trial. It was done in Bavaria on purpose with a supportive court. They almost had to convince him to convict him. Was sent to a prison where he had his own suite of rooms and had guests where he write Mein Kampf. But Hitler made a conscious decision that his path to power would not lie through a violent coup. And the path to power would be manipulating the weak democratic levers of power of the Weimar Republic. And he marched forward with that. You know, they would cause chaos in the streets. They would find enemies. They would move their way forward. And 10 years later, he's appointed chancellor in 1933. A month later is the Reichstag fire. And a month later, that is the Nabling Acts. And he's a dictator. So what drove us, and Cyrus can say how we met, but we actually met over beer, ironically. And, you know, about October of last year, I just moved to St. Louis. Cyrus was in town. A mutual friend, alumni of Claire McCaskill campaign brought us together. And we both realized at the same time that we're frustrated and saw the erasure of January 6th, the involvement of our senator here in Missouri, Josh Hawley, and others. And we weren't sure that while a lot of groups like our friends here at Lincoln Project, us, are doing a lot on that, there was not one just group that really wanted to put their heart into it. And I'll let Cyrus, you take over your, you had really a lot of the concept for what we did here. You know, when it comes to January 6th, the erasure, right after the events of that day, a little bit over a year ago, we had a couple of weeks where it seemed like things might actually go the right direction. And, you know, entropy happened, time went on, and the Erasure campaign has been very deliberate this past, uh, slightly over a year, and really successful. For example, an October survey by Morning Consult showed that support among registered voters for the work of the January 6th commission was only at 48%. And 70% of Republicans disapproved, which was up by five points from the same thing in July. 44% of independents did approve only, which was down by five points. And 10% of Democrats also did not approve. And so that is all to say that, you know, we watched what happened on TV live that day. And the fact that under a full year later, even, we were seeing not just like some erosion, but truly this became just another partisan issue. I don't think that there's another example out there of just like, you know, post-truth that is better and sort of more descriptive than this. Obviously, the big fear right now is if the Republican Party gains power again, what with how they've kicked this narrative forward successfully, we're not going to see American democracy continue in the way that we know it. And we're instead going to, you know, go down the path of beer hall putsch. And so that is to say, you know, we got together and we decided that we wanted to really be the folks moving the ball forward on combating January 6th erasure. Our theory of the case is that if the truth were enough, we'd have already won, but it's not. And that doesn't mean that it's hopeless, but it means that we've got to show up to the same fight. And so the battle against January 6th erasure is going to be won or lost in the hearts and minds of the least civically engaged Americans. Well, Fred, the window that Cyrus mentioned in the, let's say, the three to four weeks, I don't really think it was much longer than that, closed very quickly when no one stepped into the breach. Even in the context of Trump's second impeachment, remember that Mitch McConnell voted to acquit him and then immediately said he was responsible for this, right? Correct. And going back to 23, 1923, it was a similar thing, which was, I don't know that there was a window to close necessarily, but remember that in his subsequent trial, remember the judge gave Hitler broad leeway to get up and grandstand, to bring people to his side, to sort of rail against communism, rail against the Jews. And he was put in prison. But to your point, it wasn't really prison. It was a, maybe a dingy hotel, more like that. But at the end of the day, the parallel is, is that when the time came to put a stop to something that was dangerous, 
no one did anything. And the people that should have stood up didn't. And subsequently, to Cyrus's point, these things grow, they metastasize. And the establishment, and I use that both Republican, Democrat, independent media, Washington, D.C., is either unable or unwilling to understand the fight we're in and therefore spends a lot of time sort of standing around going, well, what do we do now? And let me just say this, too, on the on the January 6th committee, Cyrus, you mentioned some data points. Hard to believe that anybody really thinks about it in the real world where you all live. And Jamie Raskin, one of the members of the committee, said, oh, yeah, we'll start hearings in April. Well, like, what the hell's the holdup? They had the Capitol Police officers last August, very compelling testimony, televised. And there's been not radio silence. You know, they let things sort of drib drab out into the media. But it's going to take a spectacle, frankly, you know, to have people sitting at that table and being held to account. What does it take for folks to get it? So two points to that. One is we want to ask that question. What we're going to do when Cyrus is going to lead for us is that research, that data, polling focus groups. Like, why are we not breaking through with what we're doing and how do we do a better job? You know, I've seen a recent poll that came out, a Democratic group did a poll where they found that one thing that kind of worked was using the framework of crimes that occurred. That January 6th wasn't an insurrection or a sedition, but you can actually reach people and say, well, it was a crime. You know, 149 police were assaulted. There was $3 million of the damage. So how do we pull that thread and ask that question? How do we break through to people and make them understand? And I do believe there's that public piece of it, right? Public trials. And I think that is the power of public spectacle. And I do think it goes right to a tweet I just sent out a few minutes ago. It was about, you know, I don't know if you saw it today, Reed, but every Republican is talking about crack pipes. Crack pipes. There's crack pipes being sent out. It's complete BS, but everybody's talking about it. They're doing a coordinated campaign to put out this fake news that's putting the Biden administration on their heels. We're not seeing the same on the Democratic side. It's incredibly frustrating that it just feels like many times the Democrats, and you and I talked about it a couple of times in the last year, especially read about how this desire to go back to normal. Everybody wants to go back to normal. We don't want to overreact to Trump. And in the end, what we're doing is we're not reacting at all. And so I think the danger for us is, as you said, there's a great theory in, I guess, sociology that if a norm is broken, but it's not pushed back into the norm through either punishment or tightening of the rules, that becomes the new norm. And so for a lot of us, I think that's what drives Cyrus and I is this idea that we're allowing this to be a norm. We're allowing the rules to be broken so easily. And I guess for final point is the National Archives story, right? Great big story in the Washington Post about how Trump took all this stuff home. He broke the law. It's punishable by jail time. But then the last paragraph of the story says, of course, the National Archives law, Presidential Records Act is kind of a gentleman's agreement. So it's really not enforceable. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that's a problem. But that's also the thing. And this goes to, Fred, your piece about norms, which is laws only matter if they're enforced. The whole system rests on nothing more than collective belief. And so if Cyrus, to use some data, if 68 percent of self-identified Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen, then you should assume that nearly 100 percent of that group is going to believe that January 6th was, quote, legitimate political discourse. I think that that sort of speaks to the spectacle piece that you just talked about. This has been a problem with Democrats for the last, you know, 10, 20 years where it's like either too much or too little is done and either way it's not the right thing. And I think it's because when we do trot out any sort of spectacle type things, we have a credibility problem. And I think that that's sort of what runs so deep here when it comes to part of why erasure has been so successful and why we've been so bad at pushing back on it. And also, I think, you know, why Democrats are so generally unwilling to take stands or when they take stands, it's somehow sometimes worse. There is a real problem with, again, messenger credibility on our end with large swaths of American, I would normally say voters, but also really non-voters as well, 
And the same is true for the media. You know, the way that this has been constructed by the right for the last, you know, again, 10, 15 years, accelerating through the Trump era, the system is entirely broken. There's no point. But also, you know, that the media uh, and the mainstream media in particular is not credible. And so you have this catch-22 problem where when the media says something or when Democratic elected say something, you know, it is immediately fodder for disbelief. And either, you know, a lack of saying things or saying things a lot, you know, both contribute to the same right-wing sort of cyclical narrative. And so, you know, with this, though, part of the reason why we've allowed this to come to this point, I think, is because the right-wing machine operates in spaces that are not political. You know, there's been a lot of discourse over the last year or two years, I guess, with the pandemic on Instagram QAnon stuff and like multi-level marketing sort of being a pipeline to the alt-right and things like that. The right is really good at taking benign interests and different facts of life that, again, have nothing to do with politics and piping them into a sort of different ecosystem of information. That sort of gives credibility in some ways, and it makes us look more political than we actually are. But I mean, this is the other part, too, is and we heard this last fall vis-a-vis the January 6th committee is there are and when I say complicit, I don't mean that they're guilty of the act, but they are complicit in what you call erasure, which is there are a lot of Democrats who are not comfortable with any of this. They don't like spectacle. They want to govern. They want to see themselves as above all of the ugliness that American politics is today, maybe at its zenith. But frankly, American politics has never been a gentleman's sport, right? It's been ugly since the founding. And there's this disbelief that somehow the fever will break and it'll all go back to normal. And it's just not the case. Whatever was normal before is not normal now and will not be normal in the future, to Fred's point about norms. And so, Cyrus, to lean on your party a little bit, what is it? Like, what does it take? I travel the country. I get a lot of folks who are like, we're done. We're over. It's already over. Like, that's not a good place to start a battle. It's a bizarrely defeatist attitude. And, you know, on the one hand, I get why folks would go there. On the other hand, I think the Democrats... In particular, and I'm speaking from a campaign standpoint and from, you know, not an elected one, but I think there's a lot of the time, like a lot of fatalism that goes into this. And I don't really know where that comes from. It's like elections are going to pan out the way they pan out. There's very little that we can actually do. The only things that we can do are buy as much TV as possible, you know, knock as many doors as possible, like, you know, build these programs that will only move things by a point either way. And everything else that happens is in God's hands. And it's like, that's just not how any of this works, you know. Without getting too down the rabbit hole, I think the Obama campaign in 2012 in particular was really good at optimizing, you know, margins of margins of margins. And I think part of the problem is so much of sort of the post-Obama era has like learned the small lessons but forgotten the big ones of, you know, political communication or strategy or tactics, et cetera. So you've got a class of folks, I think, who generally think that things are out of our hands except for sort of the bare minimum in terms of effects and that when we've seen these wild swings over the last few years, like every election cycle since 2014, the bottom's fallen out at the end and, you know, crazier things have happened. Instead of looking at those things and going, what is driving this? You know, what can we control that we're not accounting for? There's kind of a head shaking a wellness to it. Without, you know, being too off the beaten track, one other example of this, I think, is red state Dems. There's a lot of folks out there who look at John Tester and Sherrod Brown and go, those are magical unicorn flukes. And that can never happen normally. And so it'll never happen again. Like, we got lucky, but that's it. And that's the exact wrong way to take lessons from that, which is to say that we don't. The point I'm trying to make that all goes together is that because we're sort of in this culture of we can only control tiny pieces of this, the rest is fatalistic and predetermined or whatever, combined with, I think the fear leads to some sort of insecurity that we're not going to be able to surmount the problem. 
And it perpetuates itself where then we act shocked when people don't support us after we don't speak to them because we don't think that there's a purpose in doing so. Well, I mean, I think you're right about the Obama piece. And I remember being a consultant in 2009 with folks coming to say, you have to be on Facebook. You have to be on Facebook. Obama used Facebook. And I said the same thing then, and I would apply the same thing to 2012. You had Barack Obama, right? Facebook was a tool. Data is a tool. You had Barack Obama. Absolutely. And I think another sort of lost lesson of 12, if you will, is we talked a lot about things like manufacturing and a lot about things like not cutting social programs, things that were like very close to people's day to day lives. And I think what happened is, you know, tactically, we did lean in and get better depending on your perspective. You know, we got more efficient and optimized and did all that stuff. But we forgot that we've got to talk about stuff. And we've also got to talk about stuff in a way that is persuasive. It's hard to know what way that is, but also the answer to figuring out how to crack the code on persuasion is not burying your head in the sand and saying, we can't do anything about it. It's to run headlong into talking to folks and figuring out you know, what those ways are. And it sounds so Hallmark-hardy to say that, but honestly, we just have given up on swaths of people. We've not talked to them in years. And then again, we have the audacity to act surprised when they consume right-wing propaganda that is well-packaged. Fred, Leaning back on your past from West Point through your military career, leading men and women in combat, you know, Sun Tzu, Alexander the Great, B.H. Little Hart, whoever it is, the best way to beat an opponent is to never have to fire a shot, is to convince them before the battle starts that they've already lost. And I feel like Republicans are 75 percent of the way there with Democrats. And I just feel like there has to be. And I think you all are a key piece of this of this united front of saying, this is not over, it's far from over. And even if we lose, we're going to go down fighting, right? Like the Germans will not take Paris on our watch. Right. And that fight is at the local level. It's occurring in Spalding, Georgia, where they broke their sunshine law and appointed another Republican to the election board and immediately outlawed Sunday voting. It's these local fights at the grassroots level. You know, Cyrus and I joke, we want to be like the OSS, right, of World War II where we supported the insurgents and the patriots and resistance in Europe. We provided them intelligence, which will be Cyrus's research and the data and analysis. We provide them training, which is what we call it the field manual, with the idea of being looking at these election laws and teaching the people on the ground how to get around them. You know, if it says you can't deliver water, well, maybe the loophole is that you can deliver Coke. Well, we'll deliver Cokes, whatever that may be. Or the answer is to deliver water and let somebody arrest you. Exactly. Be guerrilla. We have to fight. We don't have to accept defeat. And then also put the Republicans on their heels a little bit. But the answer is not just shaking your head and then just saying, hoping for the best. You know, one of the things we used to say there was a General Sullivan was the chief of staff of the Army when I was a young officer. His favorite saying was, hope is not a strategy. Look, what are we going to do? What are we throwing at this? We need to throw the entire kitchen sink at every level. It's like you and I are so proud to say about our work in the general, right? We did good work. Lincoln did good work. We didn't do it alone. We did it with other groups. We did it with the Democrats. It was part of a vast coalition like what you guys have launched at the union. The idea is if we throw everything we've got at every tool in the toolbox, every group working together, or at least in concert towards the same goal, take Europe, then we could take Europe. But the frustration I have is so much infighting, so much fatalism. You know, I'm working a couple of campaigns right now. And how often I'll talk to, a, especially a Democratic, maybe a donor or an activist or consultant and say, hey, I'm working this race. Like, oh, yeah, that's like R plus 20, that district. Yeah, we're not going to bother. No, you got to bother, bro. The idea you're giving up entire states or you're giving up entire districts, not even trying to invest in the wins. And if I hear about Amy McGrath and Jamie Harrison one more time, I'm going to probably break my phone. It's like, yeah, I get it. They lost. So now we're not going to run ever. We have to make sure we start putting our Emmy on their heels. It's the old thing. If they're going to fight with knives, we bring guns. They bring guns, we bring cannons. It's going to be bloody. 
It's so many people afraid to step into the ring and be the man in the arena who takes the dings. You got to do it. We have no choice. So, Cyrus, let me ask you this. So last week, the Republican National Committee voted to censure Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney for joining the January 6th committee, which they said was, quote, legitimate political discourse. This was sort of the spark of underlying Republican kindling, which is it was a bright line that leaders of the Republican Party had to stand on one side or the other. It was a self-inflicted wound, which we have said, being old Republicans and seeing these people, is they will beat themselves if you help them beat themselves, right? Do you think that that sort of bright line where you have Mitch McConnell saying, absolutely unacceptable, the leaders of the party saying, this is what it was, Kevin McCarthy literally running down a hallway like a scared little girl from reporters. Do you believe that has the opportunity to re-engage with Americans who maybe weren't paying attention? I'm going to be totally honest, and this is a bit of a hot take here, but I don't think it means much for that. And the reason why is because I think that the right has done such a good job of, you know, bringing everybody down to their level. You know, the Trump bump in 2016 and 2020, I think, shocked everybody both times. And in large part, you know, that's because casual apolitical people are no longer default Dems like they were under Obama. They are default Trump supporters and they view everything as broken because it kind of is. That is to say, among these folks, January 6th, the ratio will be won or lost again by having a critical mass of Americans on either side. That's not just voters. That's Americans. That includes the casual, you know, tens of millions of Americans who, like, don't really engage that much, if at all. Their beliefs matter in terms of this critical mass piece for our democracy. So grandstanding or spectacle or whatever, that really doesn't do it for folks who don't believe the system or pay attention to it. Flip side, you know, a big part of the Trump appeal is in large part because of the use of humor. I don't mean to, you know, say that, like, everything Donald Trump says is funny because it's not. But for people who think that everything is just so effed, you've got somebody who comes along and makes mockery of it. And like that is a believable hook. Any kind of like trial, any, anything like that, I'm not saying we shouldn't have it, but I'm saying when it comes to cementing that critical mass on our side to prevent erasure, we've got to look outside the bubble of what we find to be horrifying in terms of politically engaged folks on the left and look at what's going to break through. One example is the election being stolen, stop the steal, could, in my personal view, have been very much sort of blunted if we had on the front end, tongue in cheek, been like, Democrats can't steal an election. We're too much of a mess. If we could steal an election, we would have stolen it better. You know, we would have passed all kinds of stuff. Nobody ever said that. And that's wild to me, you know, because that's hilarious, first of all. And it's disarming and actually true. This is what I wanted to say. We are assertive by nature, right? Like we don't poll, we don't focus group, we don't do any of that. We just make an assumption on what we think matters. We believe that democracy matters. We believe that democracy is the most important thing in this country at this moment and probably for the next three years. Yes, you can say that the right wing media bubble is very effective and very efficient. I've seen it up close and it is frightening. But like there's got to be an answer to that. It can't just be, well, they did all this. So now we're in this playing field. I think the point is you have to play on the ground where the fight is being held, not on the ground where it's like, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice to explain all these things? And if we could just be rational enough, everybody would agree with us because that's horseshit. Politics is an emotional game. Absolutely. So we're not going to focus group or poll or, or whatever our way to a solution here. And I think that, you know, the trope about Democrats doing that too much is totally real. I think that, you know, a lot of the time information is taken out of context and what have you. And so the point of the research that we want to do is to figure out where we are at a baseline level, especially with these voters who are not our base, are not folks that we traditionally like understand as folks who are in the engaged left and just understand their viewpoints on January 6th 
how it ties into these other paper tiger issues that the GOP has created. And then also like what they think of other things too, like getting a holistic understanding of what American lives are like among sort of the disengaged. We've got to do that first before we can do anything remotely effective besides shooting in the dark to engage them. So that's the point of sort of the research component is to figure out where we're at in a like useful way. We're not trying to go after the line that tests the best. We're trying to get an understanding of where people are at right now, period, on all counts, so that then we can use that information to actually shape our campaign to push back against this now year and a half almost of erasure. And give it to anyone. You know, handing that over to be actioned upon. So it, maybe it is a Democratic campaign in Georgia or even an advocacy group like ours who's trying to you know, shape their message and their targeting. So how does this become actionable that we actually push back? And that's the thing we haven't talked about a lot is we're partnering with groups actively infiltrating the Patriot Front folks and actively looking at how, how do we dismantle these networks that are the modern essay, the modern black shirts for Mussolini? How do we get into their heads and put them on their heels? You know, one of the things I used to say when I was a, a public affairs officer in the Army that made a lot of my bosses crazy was that too often the military especially plays defensive public affairs. They wait for something bad to happen, then they respond, right? They wait to get caught and then they respond, right? And I think a lot of times our peers in the Democratic side, especially the same, is we wait to see what the Republicans are going to say and then we respond. We need to push back. We need to go on offense. Now, how do we go on offense about January 6th? How do we go on offense about this rollback of voting rights, this rollback of our democracy that's happening at the local level very quietly? You know, the, the average person has no idea who's on their election board. The average person has no idea that a QAnon person is now on their school board. We have got a real battle on our hands at the local level that could change everything for us. Well, and I mean, we get a lot of calls about those local races, too. And I said, with all due respect, like I can't undo 30 years of neglect in 10 months. Right. right. But we'll do our best. So, guys, how can folks find more about the Beer Hall Project? Right on our website, beerhallproject.com. And then all of our social channels are at Beer Hall Project. And Fred, where can folks find you on Twitter? At FP Wellman. I'm there all the time. I live on Twitter. And Cyrus, how about you? Where can we find you on social media? I'm also on Twitter uh, at Cyrus Chick, S-H-I-C-K. Well, and folks, I hope you will go to the Beer Hall Project. I hope you will learn more about what Fred and Cyrus are doing to keep what happened a year ago on January 6th front and center in the minds of not only all Americans, but also amongst those Americans who are going to help make decisions this November and November's hence. Again, as always, everybody can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Fred, Cyrus, thanks for joining me today. And everybody, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.